Hey folks, on today's episode of the Total Soccer Show, we're going to be discussing yesterday's U.S. Soccer Conference call, which unveiled Will Wilson as the new CEO, but also gave some insight into the way the Federation is dealing with the U.S. Women's National Team lawsuit. We talked to Arlington Nagby and his thoughts on the national team, and then we answer some of your listener questions. But first, I wanted to let you know that today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, Remarkably Remote is here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Add to your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove, and I'm joined by the co-CEO of the Total Soccer Show. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. Well, I feel like that's a, that's a new appointment. I think we rotate president and vice president every other year, but co-CEO yep. is a new one. I'm going to add that to my resume. Please do. Please do. Should I go and update my LinkedIn that I haven't updated since like 2012? No, leave it. Leave it as a time capsule. It's way, it's way, way better. <laughs> my, li- my LinkedIn is similar to like what my MySpace was before they purged all the MySpaces. It was interesting to go back like one time and not update anything, but just be like, oh, that's what I was into when I was 24. Good to know. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. So on today's show, we are going to be talking about William Wilson, the new CEO of US Soccer. Uh-huh. Um, he was named on Monday, I believe. There was a, there was a press conference, a teleconference where we got... Not a lot of answers, but some information. Um, we're going to talk about Darlington Nagby. We know a little more about the Darlington Nagby men's national team situation. Mm-hmm. We've got Olympic news for you. And then we have five listener questions. I think, Taylor, it's going to be a good show, but I always say that. You always do. I think the opposite. I think it's going to be terrible. Well, between us, between us, we're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's going to be terrible. I rarely, if ever, do. The only time I ever thought it was going to be a terrible show was after the USA Trinidad game, which we'll sort of talk about in relation to Darlington Nagby later on. Will we? Oh, I forgot he was involved in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's start with the uh, the CEO news. Mm-hmm. So it's not Jay Bearhalter. That was the uh, the big news. We knew it wasn't going to be Jay Bearhalter. Dan Flynn announced he was stepping down a while ago. US Soccer had this long search. The new CEO and Secretary General, I noticed that was his job title, is William Wilson, formerly of the Wasserman Group, mm-hmm. um, where he focused on American football, um, formerly of MLS and SUM, we'll talk yeah. about his role there, and formerly of um, NFL Mexico, as in he managed, uh, he was the managing director of NFL's marketing outreach in Mexico. Somehow I think that last one won't be as big of a deal to people as the other two. Maybe not, but I think it's important. I think it's one worth thinking about. Why is that? Because um, this is from the US Soccer Press release, actually. Um, they highlighted that during his time with SUM, with MLS mm-hmm. and SUM, uh, William Wilson, uh, his group was p- uh, part of the game partnership with the Mexican Football Federation. So he handled a lot of international business relationships, which is, you know, part, that's probably he got his start in that during the uh, Mexico NFL thing. Um, but I think tight ties with the Mexican Football Federation. I think it indicates where U.S. soccer are looking at going forward, right? We know about the, we're sharing the World Cup with Mexico and Canada. And we know there's going to be a thing where MLS and Liga MX are sort of starting to get more aligned. Uh, and I think uh, U.S. soccer wants to be involved in that and wants to, uh, wants to make sure all of that goes smoothly. 
Yeah, which makes sense because there is this idea, like at least I have this idea that anybody you're hiring for U.S. soccer in any position, their primary focus is on the teams and the competitions and the individual sort of competitions that they're participating in. And with the CEO, it seems like uh, it's worth remembering that it's much more, it seems like business development and sort of helping connect opportunities and create new opportunities. And that seems to be a big aspect of what he's uh, going to be doing. I also want to insist that we call him Will Wilson so that he gets the proper Viking name that he uh, deserves. (laughs) Can we call him Double W? Yeah, sure. Double Dub? <laughs> yep, let's do that one. Double Dub. If he does well, we'll call him Double Dub because Dub yeah. implies win, right? It does indeed. Uh, but to <laughs> your point about him, like uh, basically what he was doing at some and the sort of business relationships he's developed uh, from an article by uh, Paul Tenorio, who I think you might know. Uh, at some, Wilson <laughs> oversaw all international business and events uh, that included managing the business side of CONCACAF Gold Cup and tours by FC Barcelona and Manchester United, as well as running important league events like MLS Cup and the MLS All-Star Game. So he's got connections to sort of global brands. He's got con- connections to Major League Soccer. He's got connections to CONCACAF already and very specifically Mexico. So I think, yeah, when you look at all that, it does seem like it's going to be a lot of business development and and sort of developing new sponsors and then also developing those relationships probably with Mexico, which is why there was an emphasis on him being uh, a multi-language speaker. I don't know if it's just English and Spanish. There might be other ones, but Spanish was the one that was emphasized in the press conference. Yeah, and all that, there's no reason to feel bad about any of this, right? I want to I want us to start from a place of soberly assessing this appointment and not being out of the gates. Oh, here's why US soccer is terrible. Because I, yeah. I do feel like there's too much knee-jerk reaction that's immediately anti-US soccer. It's worth remembering that with Carlos Cordero stepping down, Dan Flynn stepping away, and Jay Berhalter being sort of ushered out of the back door, <laughs> we yeah. now have a new regime, essentially, of Cindy Palo Cohn as uh, president. She steps up from vice president to, to president, at least, temp- at least temporarily. Uh, and we have w- William Wilson, double dubs, um, as the new CEO and secretary general of US soccer. You know, we have Ernie Stewart and then we have Brian McBride and we have Greg Berhalter. It's a new era. It's a new regime. And I want to be open to being positive about it. Yeah. And uh, in keeping with the conference call from yesterday, I would just like to say that uh, I would echo that. There we go. <laughs> that was that was said about 10 times uh, yes. in the course of a 40 minute phone call. Well, you could tell Cindy Pollocone and uh, Double Dubs did not necessarily know each other very well, no. right? So I think they're being very polite and very businessy and also making sure they got each other's backs uh, yes. throughout that call. And Before then I think, also, about- I think also in different locations as well, because it was yes. Neil who was the kind of moderator. You had a bunch of journalists and you had Cindy and you had uh, Double Dub. Uh, and so I think you've probably got three different spaces. You're not sure who's going to go and when. I'm, I also think based on some of the comments they made uh, just about like connections and uh, people dropping in and out, I'm also thinking that probably a number of connections all plugged together uh, maybe didn't leave, lead to like the greatest level of uh, timing when it come to, came to answering some questions. No, there's a lot of strain on the internet these days, right? Because everybody's at home. <laughs> everybody's streaming the English game. It's, uh, yes, it's, it's, it. t- it's tough on the old internet. Um, that and our show, well, only those two things. <laughs> those two things. You do one, then the other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for, uh, one thing that did give me um, uh, pause, made me concerned when I first heard it, was that Will Wilson was joining from the Wasserman Group, right? Yeah. And we do know that the Wasserman Group, because they're so powerful, um, they you know they have a lot of uh, a lot of clients um, who are soccer players, and they have a certain amount of. Influence might be the wrong word, but a lot of connections to Major League Soccer and US Soccer. It did make me think, oh no, this is like the Wasserman Group is just taking over and now all their players are going to get picked for the national team and, and them only. Um, it makes me feel a little better that Will Wilson wasn't a soccer agent. He has a soccer background, right, with MLS and SUM in terms of business relationships, but he was executive vice president of football at the Wasserman Media Group. I originally thought, oh, soccer. And also Wasserman are very progressive calling it, calling it football, but no, it's, it's the throwball kind. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, but so still having the connections in that regard is, is I guess, okay, because he knows how to interact with athletes and represent their needs. Yeah. Uh, but I, I also don't know how much of that he'll actually be doing. So I don't have as much of an issue with the Wasserman connection. I don't even have as much of an issue with the Sum connection because, again, uh, developing commercial partnerships and uh, television revenue is probably a big part of his job. I had an issue with other parts of the conference call, however. What's that then, Tyler? Uh, the whole uh, conversation about the uh, the legal battle with the U.S. Women's National Team, uh, it, it seemed as though like Grant Wall started us off with a question, Jeff Carlisle followed up, and it really felt like a pack of journalists who'd all been sort of contained in their homes and hadn't been allowed to sort of like pursue topics and go after people a little bit, all scented blood in the water, and then you got a lot of questions that seemed to sort of reveal some of the issues that are uh, happening at U.S. Soccer right now, as well as maybe a lack of overall uh, awareness of the situation. Situation as well, it, which because we, there was some news out of this conference that was supposed to be the unveiling of double dubs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, but he, I mean, he, William Wilson was very careful not to say anything. Um, that gave away much detail. It was a lot of just, yeah, we're working towards that. We want to establish a nice workplace culture. Uh, we're hoping for a resolution in the lawsuit. We're working towards it. We're doing all, you know, all that kind of stuff. Even his response to uh, a question about pro rel. Don't worry, Taylor. I'm getting back to where you where you were sending us. Okay. Um, even his response to a question at the end about uh, his stance on promotion and relegation. Um, he he said like it's uh, it's certainly a topic with a lot of opinions or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there, there were no real like definitive answers about things. But the one bit of news that came out of this was that Cindy Palocone told um, the uh, assembled teleconference press that there was a litigation committee set mm-hmm. up um, under Carlos Cordero with three people on it, um, including Cindy Palocone, um, who their job was essentially to oversee uh, all, all uh, legal problems that U.S. soccer has, right, including the lawsuit with the U.S. Women's National Team, and they basically, I think, they come up with this workshopped phrase about a fundamental error in our process that is led to, led to processes uh, processes yes. mm-hmm. uh, led to a sort of not properly reviewing uh, the recent filing that contained all that stuff about men men and women's soccer not being equal, and that's why the women should be paid less. Yeah, and I promise that's not just me being like uh, like. Uh, petty and just like oh no it has to be the exact right verbiage it's more that I feel like uh, I, I make that point because if she had just said like yeah there was a problem in the process and we're working on that like that would have been human speak to sort of have the like <laughs> half Mississippi pause she had where she was well I mean you know there there was a fundamental pr- like, like there was a fundamental error in our processes like it was delivered as though it was meant to be sort of improvised but I got the impression that it was a very much scripted answer that she was told or at least had written down as like this is the way we want to proceed yeah of there was an unerror we're in investigating the error that will be resolved nothing else to see here go on about your business so what what it said to me is probably it means that there was a litigation committee mm-hmm. I, I mean i believe it exists obviously yeah. uh, but that it seems like maybe they weren't involved enough with what the lawyer either they were involved with what the lawyers were doing and they're not telling us the truth right yeah. that's one angle the more generous angle is that they were very hands-off and just let the legal team do what they want which i think that's the fundamental error in the process yeah. Uh, a, a couple things there. Um, I, I think when she – it was an interesting thing to see them give an answer, then get pressed like by a question, a couple questions later, give an answer to that, then a couple questions. It just kept – we kept getting to like the next layer of the answer, uh, including Jonathan Tannenwald, who uh, asked some great questions, asking who oversees the in-house legal team. We eventually got an answer to that. It is uh, Parlo Cohn, it's board members Tim Turney, and uh, Patty Hart. Uh, yeah. but that's it was the, also That's just, the litigation committee, right? 
Yes, exactly. It was just slightly uncomfortable because I believe about two minutes before she went on record answering that, Jeff Carlyle tweeted who was on who was on that uh, litigation committee. <laughs> so there was a little bit of like the reporters were maybe ahead on this one, and it did feel like like uh, police, police police always say in the podcast I listen to that you never ask a question in the interrogation that you don't already know the answer to, and right. it felt a little bit like that here, where some of the reporters were like, "What do you think about this now? I'm waiting for you to answer incorrectly," uh, which is not a criticism of the reporters, more so just that it felt like. There was a lot of information already known, and I don't think Pablo Cohn kind of expected that level of questioning in this introductory uh, conference call. And so I think she was scrambling a little bit, and I think we ended up getting maybe a bit more revealing information than I would have expected otherwise. I've just realized that the way we're discussing this is very meta, right? Because a lot of the journalists on the call will ask their question in order to write their story. You yeah. know what I mean? They'll get their quotes and then they'll write their story. And mm-hmm. you see all these stories appear um, in in different publications. And obviously, everybody uses quotes from the, from other people's questions. Uh, but I feel like we're, we're the only place where there's like a meta report on how the teleconference went down. I mean, I'm, not, it's, I'm it's, not saying it's a bad thing. I, I think it's a I think it's a good thing. It, it is. It's just like I, I, I'm emphasizing the questions that were asked and, and how much how interesting I thought the overall call was, I think, specifically because we've been on these calls a lot. And every now and then we'll ask questions if it's like, oh, OK, like they're asking about this thing. I don't really have as much of an interest in that. I want to hear about like what Berhalter is going to do tactically. So we'll ask that yeah. here. I kept I was like I had a list of questions and all of them were either answered or I was like, my questions aren't as good as the questions that are being asked. So it just <laughs> felt like a very sort of everybody was ready to go, uh, had been sort of hydrating and preparing and now had their like full 100% stamina uh, when it came to this call. So the TSS report is, don't worry, American soccer fans, American soccer journalists are doing their jobs. They're on yeah. top of things enough that Taylor didn't feel the need to ask a question. And no one ever um, needs me to ask questions. And, and I will say, though, like, like we have American soccer journalists asking good questions, and then we have great analysis from people like, say, Neil Blackman, uh, who tweeted, yeah. the notion a high-level corporate client with its own legal department didn't see or wasn't provided a brief filed on its behalf by one of the best law firms in the, in the country taxes the credulity of the credulous. Well Ooh. said, Neil Blackman. Well, I will say, and I believe Neil Blackman is an attorney, right? Mm-hmm. So he has, he's not just uh, spouting off. He has some knowledge about how these right. things work. Um, mm-hmm. So there is, someone has taken the blame, right? Yes. Someone has been forced to walk the plank. Who is it, Taylor? Lydia Walkie. I feel like she added the K-E, so we would know that she wasn't related to Grant Wall. Uh, but Lydia she, Walkie, she, US walkies, she walked the plank. She sure did. U.S. Soccer's chief legal officer, according to reporting from Grant Wall, uh, she's been put on administrative leave pending the result of the review. Uh, we should note that uh, Parlo Cohn said there's basically going to be an in-house review uh, from, I think, an outside firm uh, they've, they've brought in to sort of evaluate how this fundamental error in our processes came to be. So many outside firms. Mm-hmm. So many outside firms. Even the hiring of Double Dubs was, you know, conducted by one outside firm and then a different outside firm. Yeah. And it was. Uh, but in this do case... Ever, do you ever think US soccer should just have their own HR department that goes looking for people and maybe has their own legal department, just have some lawyers on staff that can represent them instead of keep hiring outside firms? Well, now they've had another Lydia outside... Walkie supposed to do. I think she's US soccer's chief legal officer would imply that that's probably what she's supposed to be doing is reviewing all of this. And the kind of reading between the lines implication I got is that the, the team, uh, the special litigation committee, I think probably did not read the filing and instead looked to Walkie because yes. uh, my, my assumption would be like, hey, we're all athletes here. Like, 
we don't really know. You're the lawyer. You tell us. We're just going to kind of do hands off. Walkie then maybe read it, maybe didn't. I'm assuming read it if she's a good lawyer. Uh, and then was like, okay, go ahead and do that anyway. And now you have a situation in which the people didn't read it, but they're responsible for reading it. So they're kind of not stepping forward to say like, yeah, we didn't really do the job that we're supposed to be doing. And instead it seems like, yeah, it's getting uh, like thumped onto Lydia Walkie instead. So the short version of what you just said is that maybe Walkie is the fundamental error in the processes. Yes, or at least, yes, that's my uh, my guess for how it will end up being portrayed, yes. Yeah, and we don't know, right, if she's been Mm -hmm. scapegoated or if it actually was her job and she didn't do it to, uh, to make sure that everybody knew what was in the filings. Yeah, but I also think U.S. soccer is walking a fine line because... If you continue to blame this outside firm, who, as uh, uh, Neil said, is like a a very well-known, very well-respected, one of the best law firms in the country, I do feel like there will come a time when they're going to say, like, hey, like, here is the evidence that we did our job. Maybe you guys didn't do yours. So I feel like U.S. soccer is walking that that tightrope right now. We'll see how it goes. Because then they could end up having to defend themselves Mm -hmm. against that outside firm, right? Which I can't remember the exact exact word, the name of the firm, but it sounds like Sith. Well, that tells you all you need to know right there. <laughs> um, all right. Anything else that you want to say about the hiring of William Wilson as new CEO um, or the or the conference today? Oh, mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, yesterday? Nope. But uh, all this talking about uh, U.S. soccer and some and acronyms for some reason has made me hungry, Daryl. Do you know what I could do if I were hungry? What would you do if you were hungry? I would maybe uh, visit today's sponsor, HelloFresh. See what I did there? Uh, get mouthwatering seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh makes cooking at home fun, easy, and affordable. So you can break out of your dinner mm-hmm. rut. If you've been making the same five recipes like I have for most of your life, you can get instead try one of HelloFresh's 22 or more seasonal chef-curated recipes each week. I know mm-hmm. that when I try a recipe or I'm doing it myself, it is not chef-curated. <laughs> uh, m- mine certainly is not, unless I want to be pretentious and put on a big white hat. Uh, then maybe I've <laughs> curated it myself. I don't think that makes me a chef. I think you have to do more than just wear the hat. I think you have to uh, go to chef school, right? I think so. Or or have a rat on your head who does all the cooking for you, one or the <laughs> other. Uh, I don't know if that's factually based, Ratatouille. It might just be I, a documentary. I could be wrong. I don't, th- I don't think it was factually based, Taylor. I think, you it, sure? In, yeah, in reality, it was a mouse. There are definitely, there we go. There are de- <laughs> See, this is the type of, uh, we don't need that narrative change. Just leave it as a mouse. That would have been fine, guys. <laughs> um, and I will say, like, like in a sort of serious uh, tone that uh, we have heard nothing about whether or not HelloFresh are continuing to deliver. So my assumption is that they are, but it is a time period in which like the food that I am buying is stuff that I know how to cook and it's very basic stuff. And it, and HelloFresh does give you different recipes for different things that you wouldn't otherwise cook. And it is a way to sort of have a nice meal that is sort of formal and sort of fancy within your home that you can make, or you can make with whomever might be around you, whomever's with you in the moment, you could all work together to make a nice meal that looks like the pictures ideally. And if you are going to hire an outside firm to take care of your food, like U.S. Soccer might, then HelloFresh is definitely the way to go. Not least because they're nice and flexible. You can add extra meals or lunches to your weekly order, um, or you can, you know, you can change it up and not have it delivered. Say you're out of town or, or whatever. So it's nice and flexible. So it's you're never you're never trapped in a box. You're never you're never trapped, in, trapped a in a box. But you are afforded the opportunity to utilize their pre-portioned ingredients. So that means less prep, less waste. Uh, you're using what they give you. You're using what you need and nothing else so if you want to give it a go you go to hellofresh.com slash tss10 and use code tss10 for 10 free meals including free shipping once again that's hellofresh.com slash tss10 and use code tss10 for 10 free meals including free shipping what i said matched what you said so it's definitely right 
All right, that's good. We did the verification thing where you had to read yes. another password. All right, yep. good, good job by us. Good job there by HelloFresh. No- Thank you to them for sponsoring today's show. There were no fundamental errors in our processes there, <laughs> Taylor Rockwell. Um, the other bit, of news, other bit of news from the last week or so, um, yeah. it's Darlington Nagby. Darlington Nagby made an appearance on the BSI podcast. If you don't know what the BSI podcast is, it's uh, Benny, Sal, and Ike, right? So it's Benny, Falhaber, Sal Zizzo, and Ike Opara. They have a podcast where they talk to um, usually fellow MLS players, right? essentially soccer players that they already know i thought it was usually them talking about bmi indexes (laughs) or i guess it's bm index i don't know how that works the bsi podcast um, is what this is they had darlington nagby on not so long ago and we essentially got an answer because they asked him we got an answer to why darlington nagby hasn't been playing for the national team Mm -hmm. for the past couple years i'm going to tell you here's how it went down taylor um once they they warm him up a bit it's all very friendly then benny fireharbor says my first real Mm -hmm. question is about the national team and Darlington Nagby says, hang on, my wife's calling. I have that written down too as a good indicator of how the conversation was going to go. And I'm sure, I think Darlington Nagby was joking, but it's a very good joke. <laughs> it cracked them all up. It felt like it was an inside joke or something. Yeah, because um, they already, I think they already knew what Nagby was going to yeah. say, right? Mm-hmm. They already knew what this was about. And I think it was set up for him to kind of get this information out there. So when they talked about the, um, the, the basically the thing you have to give up when you go and play for the national team is that time you might have had off from your club soccer you don't get it. You don't get to spend time with your family. Instead, you have to go and do national team things, right? And what Nagby says is, it's a tough choice, but at the same time, it isn't. That basically, he values time with family over time with the national team. So we kind of knew this, right? We'd heard this here and there. Uh, most, I think most fans sort of knew that this was probably the case, but we now have it 100% confirmed that essentially mm-hmm. the reason Nagby's not playing for the national team is he'd rather spend time with his family. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's the bigger quote as well. Uh, I have that written out if you want me to read that one more. That gets into kind of more specifics on yeah. like the issues of playing for the national team. Yeah, I mean, uh, let's let's set it up. But I would also encourage okay. people to actually go and listen to this episode mm-hmm. of the BSI podcast because we can't be stealing the quotes from uh, Benny, Sal and Ike and have them come after us. Right. Yeah, I would say if you want if you want to hear this um, in context, definitely go and listen to this episode of the BSI podcast. I think of those three, I want Benny come after me the least just because Ike Opara. I feel like I could distract with parks and recreation. Sal <laughs> seems like a nice enough fella. Benny seems like he, he might get uh, he might get rough if he doesn't like the way we uh, present this conversation. It's very possible. It's very possible. I forgot Ikapara tweeted that parks and rec over the office. No, mm-hmm. no question, right? And it's why he remains uh, number one in my heart. Uh, Nagby said, I like what I do for a living. I like being home a lot. National team took away from me being home in those few breaks that we would get. You would see some guys get some time off and things like that. And we would travel to St. Vincent to go play on cricket fields and stuff like that. Uh, so for me, it's a grind. I feel like where you travel to go uh, uh, to go play makes a big difference. Drinking out of uh, water bottles and brushing your teeth with that, people don't really see that. And so I think what he's basically just saying is like it's a lot harder to go on the road and especially since you don't have much time, you don't have a, like uh, a lot of time during the season. So that time that you do have, he doesn't really want to j- just go play in these cricket fields where it's uh, maybe not very much appreciated. But I think the other thing that I w- wanted to sort of focus in on is when you said that earlier, quote, it's a tough choice, but at the same time, it isn't. The tough choice, as I understood it in the context of that conversation, wasn't necessarily playing for the national team. It was the opportunity to play at a World Cup was a tough choice that like you want to be able to play at a World Cup. And that's a tough choice. But at the same time, it isn't. And I think that is sort of my big takeaway is that it's not really about like, oh, CONCACAF is hard or going on the road is hard. I think it's basically he wanted to play in a World Cup. And that was his big motivating factor to play for the national team when that was no longer a possibility. Unless we forget he's on the field in Cuba. He subs out for Benny Failhopper. They mentioned that on the show. 
Um, I think it was sort of like, well, the World Cup opportunity is gone. Everybody sort of hates this team right now. I don't really need it in my life. And I think that that kind of informs where he is now. Yeah, and I think weighing all that against wanting to spend time with family, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, if he, yeah. if he had nothing else going on, it's not as if, it doesn't sound like it would be as if, oh, I don't want to do that just because I'd rather watch Netflix or something. He's yeah. very specific about it being about spending time with family. Yeah, which uh, which honestly, I don't have an issue with. I think my only, like, and I'm not sort of like like angry about this by any stretch. My only concern slash hesitation is just that, like, you and I were devastated when the United States didn't qualify for the World Cup for any number of reasons. And there's a small part of me that wonders, like, if your only motivation is to go to the World Cup, at the end of the day, are you gutted by that? Or are you like, well, that opportunity's gone. Like, I don't really want to play anymore. Like, that, that's my only thought is, like, would like, it be, have been better to have somebody who was, like, like dying to, to play for the national team and make sure that we went to a World Cup? I doubt that's the case, but just that little question of motivation is the only thing that I found myself sort of scratching my head on. I mean, maybe, but there's another way to look at it right which is that at that point so 2017 Darlington Nagby um, obviously prefers spending time with his family but he's at that time he's making the sacrifice and going on the road in the hex to try and get results to try and get the team to the World Cup so in a weird way I would argue you're making a bigger sacrifice by going and playing when you really really want to be at home you know what I mean? Yeah. So I would almost do the opposite of question his motivation because because he's been willing to give up something that he truly values. All right, all right, that, that's fair. So then, so then, I think we don't really need to go too much deeper on this one, right? Because neither one of us is like, well, should he get a call up again or anything like that? No. He pretty much, he pretty much uh, put the nail in that coffin. They asked if you get a gold cup, uh, gold cup call up, are you going to go? He said, nope, I'm going to stay home. Yeah, I think, and I kind of like the the clarity of this. I think is the thing, right? We we just know, right? There's no discussion or conversation no, now about one. Why isn't Nagby being called up? And, and there's no question of like, should we call him up? He's he's basically not interested. Prefers to spend time at home. And honestly, it's up. It's completely up to him. I I'm a big believer in the, the idea that players don't owe you anything, right? They don't even owe you playing for the national team just because that's their national team. Um, if they don't want to do something, they don't have to do it. So there's, I don't think there's any point tearing our hair out about this, even if we'd like to see Nagby on the national team. If he doesn't want to do it, he doesn't want to do it. And that, that's all there is to it. Yeah, I think I think that is well said. Yeah. Uh, we're not so, like, it's it, not like we're paying his wages like through our taxes or something. You know what I mean? Like He absolutely can do whatever <laughs> he wants. Are we not? I thought that was the whole thing. That, I, the I, only I reason I've been paying taxes. <laughs> Unless we can like uh, get get uh, Nancy Pelosi to add something to Congress's stimulus bill before they uh, merge <laughs> it with the with the Senate bill. Let's not do that. <laughs> we'll Let's add an extra an extra trillion to persuade Darlington and Nagby to play for the national team. <laughs> We'll let Double Dub do some fundraising, and we'll, we'll worry about maybe taxpayers getting the money instead. I should add, instead of talking more about Darlington Nagby, I will just add that uh, in the time since we began answering or discussing this topic, uh, Small Dog has appeared in the bedroom and is now sitting on my lap as we record. So Hello, there's Small a tiny dog, dog uh, hanging out. Hello, Small Dog. It, it's mm-hmm. also worth noting from that same conversation, um, Ike Parra made it very clear that he was no longer yeah. considering playing international football. Here's a quote. I'm going to give you a direct quote, if you don't mind, Taylor, mm-hmm. from Ike Parra. If Greg sends me a prelim email for the pool, January camp, I will respond, take me off of this. I almost wish he did so I could respond, take me off of this. And it really uh, sounded like Aikapara was salty about, yeah. not specifically with Behalter, but with all national team coaches for not really giving him a shot over the years, right? He has one cap. He has one cap from a January yeah, he camp. Said, he said that. Yeah. I got my one cap. He said that one. 
but and um i know he's like what 31 maybe yeah. or around around 30 like it it's definitely it wasn't like he was going to suddenly have a big international career but i think in hindsight is the type of player that that absolutely should have had way more caps i know there were injuries yeah. right there were injuries that stopped him for a while but for the last few years he's been good he's been healthy he's been solid he probably deserved a call up yeah, but I think we we did uh, we answered a listener question about this a long, long time ago, slash maybe a year ago. Time has lost on meaning, so I don't know. In which, yeah, you, as you said, injuries play a big part, and then basically those injuries tended to coincide, unfortunately for him, with a new manager coming in. So like, yeah. he's injured as Klinsman is appointed, so then he doesn't get some of those initial January call-ups. I think same thing for, like, he might even have been injured when Arena takes over. There was a lot of sort of unfortunate timing for Ikopara, both in terms of his injury record and then when those injuries occurred. I, actually, I want to say, that January camp under Arena is when he got that first cap. Okay, that that could be, but then I think maybe like the next time there was a possibility of him getting called up, then he was injured again or something like that. It's basically it just kept being an inhibiting obstacle. All right, so no Ikapara for the U.S. men's national team and no Darlington Nagby for the U.S. men's national team and no Benny Fahaba in soccer ever, right? Benny Fahaba announced his retirement. He sure did. No more can, Benny Fellhaber, but lots of other people still involved in U.S. soccer, we're pretty oh yeah. sure. And you can still catch Salzizo playing for San Diego Loyal, I believe. Oh, um, really? Yeah. One, one extra bit of news. That's London Dunvin's team. Um, one extra mm-hmm. bit of news. The Olympics. We all knew this was coming, right? But the Olympics, they've announced that the Olympics will be uh, postponed until 2021. So Olympic soccer will not happen along with the rest of the Olympic sports. Mm-hmm. And so that has led to the question of, does that mean like players who were eligible this year but won't be next year, will they still be allowed to compete? And I, I don't know how much digging you've done, Daryl. I'm happy to go with the assumption that they will, and they'll probably extend the age uh, to allow people who would have otherwise participated this summer to participate next summer. Yeah, I, I saw a couple of non-committal quotes of like, we're, we're working towards figuring it out and everybody's health is most important and this and that. No one really answered the question properly. But Brian Sharetta had the most logical argument, which is, with so many things either happening in 2021 or being pushed to 2021, right? So you've got uh, Copa America and the Euros are both going to be 2021. The Under-20 World Cup was already scheduled um, for 2021. The Gold Cup is scheduled for 2021. It would be crazy on the uh, part of Olympic soccer, um, the IOC and FIFA to to make this U23 uh, like starting from 2021, right? Why limit the amount of players that can play in it when it's already going to be difficult to get people called up? And also why deny players who uh, like became overaged in that one year window? Why deny them their Olympic opportunity that they would have had? So all you have to do is essentially leave the regulations as they were. The regulations right now is you had to be born on January 1st, 1997 or later. I looked this up to make sure. January 1st, 1997 or later. Um, As long as that is, as long as just leave that language as it is then it will essentially be an under 24 tournament all right so so would we would be okay with that right because it keeps people yeah. involved but then it allows maybe younger people to also get yeah. to go and get I mean, jackson I Yule think, in there go on jackson Yule. let me rephrase this i'm okay with it because there's going to be so much other soccer that i don't know if i have the time or energy to care about it <laughs> yeah that's fair i mean the care whole... about the, the care about who gets involved or like should they be involved or not and more so just like whatever anybody should be allowed to do whatever because times are weird and times are going to be weird for a little bit longer yeah so let's let's uh, loosen once things get worked out we should loosen up some rules a little bit right to uh to make everything better um do you want to have we got time for another ad read or do you want to get straight into listener questions i say let's do the ad read then get to listener questions because today's show is also you also brought to you by let me see if I'm getting this right. It's called Tahi uh, at Hletic. Tahi at Hletic. That uh-huh. is correct. Cool. 
if you're already a subscriber to The Athletic, you will have noticed that even though there's no sport happening, the Turkish League has even closed down, right? Even though there's no sport happening. I believe um, the Brazilian League is still happening. Is it but, still going? Uh, right. It might be. I don't know. Let's not look to Brazil to be uh, our indicator of how things should be right now. <laughs> okay, even though there's no sport on TV, mm-hmm. um, there is still plenty of content uh, being published at The Athletic because it is still home to 400 of the best sports writers out there. And in these very strange, very uncertain times, they are still hard at work doing excellent reporting and telling unique, engaging, informative stories. You can tell I was reading the copy on that last bit, uh, but the, it, it's true, right? Especially we, we only focus on the soccer side. I only read the athletic soccer stuff. There are still all kinds of stories being published, all kinds of like retrospectives and really interesting things going on there. Mm-hmm. And because the athletic have so many writers who are also very good with so much good access, you get a lot of different stories, uh, even in the uh, present circumstances, because one thing you want with people who have the access is a little bit of the gossip, a little bit of the behind the scenes, like, ooh, they don't get along. And you can get that uh, when you look at the situation between Todd Gurley and the Rams and how it was beyond repair. So you get some NFL gossip and drama. But then you also get explainers about gossipy drama things when it comes to the world of soccer, specifically uh, how Ronaldinho, how and why Ronaldinho is still in a Paraguay, Paraguayan jail right now, which I have oh, to yes. believe is maybe a little bit more nerve wracking than it was before this whole pandemic began. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, he, all the photos, he looks kind of happy, right? Playing soccer yes. in prison. Yeah, he it? had the, like, like the wall of meat that he was carving when I, when last I saw a photo of him. Paraguay jail seems, uh, okay, but I'm guessing it's okay when you're a Ronaldinho. Did you see that they had, um, a soccer tournament while he was in there and they, he wasn't they made, allowed to score? They made the rule that he was allowed to play, but he wasn't allowed to score. I would have yeah, loved, made... they should have broadcast that. Forget the Brazilian I, league. I, I want to see that. Do you think, what would he do? Would he like dribble like, like around the goalkeeper and then just leave the ball on the line for somebody else to come finish? Well, you would hope someone would go with him and he could pass it, right? Well, that would be ideal. That would be ideal. So if you want to see what the genuinely really talented uh, writers at The Athletic are producing during these difficult times, it's it's the best sports content out there. I really and truly believe that. That's one of the reasons we wanted to join The Athletic. They are doing a 90-day free trial. You can sign up now for a 90-day free trial if you go to theathletic.com slash totalsoccer. That's theathletic.com slash totalsoccer for a 90-day free trial. Mm-hmm. We hope to see you there over at The Athletic. And again, that's home to 399 of the best sports writers out there. And then also Sam Stachel. <laughs> you mispronounced his name as well, just to add the extra little insult. I sure did. I sure did. <laughs> <laughs> I know, he, he taught me how to pronounce it, I think, when we were in person and then also over the phone. So yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, in your face, Sam. Not in your face, uh, everybody who sent us some listener questions, which is what we're going to do now. Yeah. Uh, starting with Jacob Titus. Uh, Jacob asks, if the season gets extended into the summer transfer window, do you think the window should be shifted to the end of the season or allow the transfers to go on as normal, keeping in consideration contracts ending in the summer? Okay, so I'm picturing the Premier League just because it's the league we all know best, right? Um, I think they should uh, let people extend contracts to the end of the season if they want to, right? Like, say, uh, Pedro and Willian are the two players I know at Chelsea. Their contracts go to, uh, right now, they go to June 2020. Um, So if the season extends beyond June, there should just be an easy option on the table, right, for them to extend their contract through to the end of July or however long it takes to get the season played out. And then once once that's been done, then we can just agree that the, the quote-unquote summer transfer window just takes place after the season has ended. So the really basic answer is yes, I think Jacob Jacob's suggestion that's in the question, I think is the right thing to do. 
Yeah, um, I think I think what my guess would be is that it will open the same dates as usual, but it would be almost like if you like when you can sign a player in February, but you can't register them until the window opens in the summer. Like that's my guess is what it would be. Is like you can still sign people, but that won't be effective until the season ends and then and like preseason begins the next time round. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because what you really don't want is mm-hmm. players moving what in what would be like the last nine games of the Premier League season. Like play two mm-hmm. more games and then join Arsenal for the rest of the seven games of the season. Season, that would just be bizarre right you'd have players disappearing between games yeah i so i think you wouldn't i think i think that's what they'll do one thing to your point though like i actually think what leagues might have to do is make it almost mandatory that like if your contract is expiring it is automatically extended by one month or two months or whatever the situation requires just because players could leverage that they could say well you're not going to re- like you're not going to renew my contract now so when my contract expires i'm done i'm not agreeing to any sort of extension and it sort of forces the club's hand uh and so i'm almost wondering if some leagues are going to make it that like if you had a deal that deal continues until the end of the season is that legally enforceable I don't know. I, I I'm sure there's going to have to be a lot of flexibility. To Are you going to go around and put horses' heads in everybody's beds? You know, yeah. what I mean? you can't force players to sign a contract. It's a lot of heads. Think. It's a lot of horses, and it's a lot of beds. But you know, you got to do what you got to do. Horse racing would be over. <laughs> it would. Yeah, I mean, I just that is that is the wrinkle that I don't fully know how they'll get around because you could have uh, players kind of force the issue, especially when you now have clubs uh, cutting wages and maybe trying to get around paying everybody what they're supposed to be paying them. So if there is sort of bad blood, ill will, you may ha- you could have some players just be like, no, you didn't treat me well then, so why should I treat you well now? Yeah, you know what? I was thinking top end, like you know, Willian Pedro at Chelsea. I yeah. imagine they have such goodwill towards Chelsea, they could even just say, hey, we'll just play at the season it's fine then mm-hmm. then we'll move on right we're already very wealthy and we we love things at Stamford Bridge it's all good but yeah lower and lower and lower down the leagues like in league two there are going to be, pl- going to be players who are not happy with how things have been going that maybe they they needed to get paid and they aren't getting paid mm-hmm. that that's where things might get testy right and especially if there's like promotions and playoffs and relegations um, things could get really complicated down there they, they certainly could. They certainly could. But with all that said, I do still think that they'll open it on time just because... The transfer window? Not, yeah, because otherwise, if you have players agreeing to contracts, you always have them expiring sort of on the same dates so that players are then free agents available to sign for whomever when the transfer window officially opens on July 1st or whenever it opens in the respective leagues. Uh, and I don't think that you could then have like, well, actually, from, from now on, it's always going to be in August because that's when the season ended and that's when this window then reopened. So I think you kind of have to keep it the same so that you don't mess everything up a year or two from now. So, but then wouldn't you have some players who have signed a contract with a different team still seeing out the season with their original team? Yeah. I think you'd probably have to. That's what I'm saying. That's I think interesting. It would be sort of like you can't then register for your new team until the end of this season. That actually could. That sounds crazy when you say it, but it actually could work, right? It, it's yeah. a thing that would make sense on the field, and then separately it would make sense contractually because you can mm-hmm. start getting paid July 1st. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. then, I mean, I doubt like it would go into. Yeah, I doubt you're getting paid by both. That could be a conflict of interest, but it's yeah. worth remembering. Like we've had these situations in the past in which a player has agreed to move to a, a team already, and then they end up playing that team in the Champions League or in the domestic competition or what have yeah. you. So it's not even that conflict of interest isn't that big of a deal. It's happened before; it'll happen again. I mean, Hakim Ziyech. We talked about him either mm-hmm. early this week or last week. He's signed with Chelsea, right? Already mm-hmm. for next season, but he's seeing out the season with Ajax. Yeah. 
Uh, Jaron Shakiri is the one that I, for some reason, always comes to mind of when he moved from Basel, I think it was, to Bayern Munich. Basel played Bayern Munich in the knockout round of the Champions League, and there was some. There's always that debate of like, is he going to try to knock them out and kind of show the new club that he belongs, or is he going to be okay with losing so that his club go further uh, down the road? I mean, the answer is he's going to play for Basel and play his best, right? I echo that sentiment. <laughs> you ready for the next question? I'm just going to keep saying that from now on. Yes. <laughs> it comes from Zach Lippert. Zach Lippert says, who is one player whose prime you wish lasted longer? I think this is a great question. I have no idea who you're going to say, Taylor, so I'm really excited to hear your answer. Well, it occurs to me that there are two ways of interpreting this question. I now realize the way I chose to see it is like basically whose prime was cut short. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I guess you could interpret it as whose prime do you wish had lasted longer because they were that good. Mm. So Uh, how how have you interpreted it and who are you going to talk about? I have gone with injuries, and I have two players in mind with that in that uh, regard. One is John O'Brien. Uh, John O'Brien, who oh, we all yeah. love from 2002, uh, but then you look at his career with Ajax, I think in like, I forget what the number is, I think he made 63 appearances from 1998 to 2005, and really most of those were prior to the 2002 World Cup. Then he has uh, a series of injuries, I think tendonitis, or he had chronic injuries, tendonitis is my next player, um, and basically that kept him out of the Ajax squad, so much so that like he goes to the 2006 World Cup, not really having played a game for uh, uh, any club that season before, but I guess Bruce Arena values his guys. Uh, so I think the idea of a John O'Brien who stayed fully fit and got a bunch of games for Ajax, you would have had him in the Champions League, or you've had him playing regularly in the Champions League. Maybe that means a bigger move somewhere else. Maybe he becomes an even bigger figure for the national team. So that was uh, one of mine. I've got another one, but I don't want to dominate everything. Well, so Daryl, who have you got? Before you moved on, I didn't pick either of these guys, uh, mostly because we've answered the, a slightly different question in the past about the U.S. men's national team and yeah. the most um, the most important injuries that like we wish hadn't had happened and we definitely both those times uh, said Stu Holden because uh, it would yep. have been like an, a Holden and peak era Michael Bradley midfield partnership yeah. would have been just magnificent mm-hmm. um, and then also Charlie Davies because he was so so effective yeah. partnering Josie Altador in 2009 Confederations Cup run and all that if Charlie Davies hadn't been in that car crash and he'd gone to the 2010 World Cup right. then who knows what that US team would have looked like I just wanted to make sure to note those two and just the reason I'm guessing neither of us are answering those is because we've already um, used them for different answers basically yes basically uh, yeah. so who who was your second player I'd be interested to hear um, it's from a much more personal, my, my personal rooting interest standpoint, it's Owen Hargraves. Uh, Owen Hargraves moved to Manchester United when he was 26 years old from Bayern Munich. Really, it was like this, he was a massive signing for them because he was an English player who came from Bayern Munich and had kind of developed in their system. Um, he plays uh, a very strong first season. He still has some injuries, but plays uh, the entirety of the 120 minutes in the Champions League final. He scores one of my favorite penalties of all times in that shootout. Uh, he wins the Premier League, he wins the Champions League in his first season, and basically it goes off the rails from there um he has patellar tendonitis that keeps him out there's the game where he comes back he plays like 17 minutes and he subs on and basically subs back out with injury and that's sort of the end of it but he was a player who i thought was going to be this sort of like dynastic player who would establish this like next generation and instead he has that one season and then more or less completely falls off yeah that's fair that's fair um, okay you ready for mine yeah it's paul gascoigne okay paul gascoigne's he's not surprising paul gascoigne's prime was yeah. so so great and so very very brief right mm-hmm. so he becomes a big big deal in the like late 80s right so when he's early 20s he goes to the world cup in 1990 Sorry for, sorry for interrupting, but it occurs to me that we may have some people who like found us because they're watching the English game and are new to soccer or just getting into it. Can you explain a little bit more about who Paul Gascoigne is and why he has such resonance for you? 
Yeah, I mean, I think actually I'm going to do it within this answer, but essentially okay, cool. Paul Gascoigne is uh, England's star player and sort of creative, most creative player in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and when he came to prominence for most people was the 1990 World Cup, right? Where he was, um, like English football has this uh, reputation of being very, you know, direct and just rugged and and not very technical. Gaza, as they called him, Paul Gascoigne, just ha- he had this thing where he was just would just dribble at people, would like do the crazy things that most English players wouldn't do. And he was absolutely joyous to watch. He would do things that no one saw coming, no one expected. It made England unpredictable in a good way, right? So his peak, his prime is 23 years old, 1990 World Cup, which he really lights up. It's only a year later he has that horrible injury in the 1991 FA Cup final. And it's kind of his fault. He goes in for a slide tackle that's a foul that he doesn't really need to be going in for, and it ruins his knee. Then he ends up with lots and lots of surgeries on that knee. He moves to Lazio in 1992, like a prearranged transfer, and he only plays 43 games over the next three years. England don't qualify for the World Cup because he plays so few games for England. So do you, so that's you feel like that's almost entirely because he wasn't there is why they don't qualify. It's because he was in and out and in and out with injuries, yeah. And even when he did play, he was like only a little bit fit and not. He was never quite the same player after he got that knee injury. So yeah, we never really got the full uh, like many many years of the uh, uh, primo Paul Gascoigne. Um, and the really interesting thing is he he makes a smart move after Lazio in 1995. He goes to Rangers, um, where in a weird way, I mean not in a weird way. I'm just trying not to insult Scottish football. It's just easier to play for Rangers, right, yeah. than to play in the in the uh, Premier League because you're playing for the, one of the top two teams and you're dominating teams every week. And Gaza could essentially just show off his skills um, in in Scottish football. And he has that one extra glorious summer for England at Euro 96. If you've not seen his goal against Scotland um, at Euro 96, where he lifts it over Colin Hendry's head and then volleys it, it is absolutely, absolutely beautiful. Um, it's one of, so the best, one of the best England performances of all time, the Euro 96. What I'm writing down was Gaza equals good. Is that, Ga- is that fair? Gaza equals good. But really all we got was 1990, then the 1991 season... And then like a brief summer at Euro 96. And then he doesn't even get picked for the 98 World Cup squad because as well as having the big injury and then a lot of follow-up injuries, he's also not great at taking care of himself, right? He's not someone who... Um, <laughs> the big thing in the, I think, around about 98 was that he didn't refuel correctly. <laughs> I mean, he refueled in one way, just probably not the ideal way. That's what they meant. That's what, <laughs> that's what they meant. But if you could have had like a, you know, 10 years of Gaza in his prime, I think we would have seen all kinds of magnificent things for England and also for club teams, which with all due respect, club teams that aren't in Scottish football, where it would have been a bit harder to do. So uh, I'm amending my statement to Gaza equals good, but could have been gooder. Yes. And it's not just okay. as an, not just as an England fan, like an England lacking that sort of creative spark, which is what Gaza was. Also just the, the highlight reels that we would have, right? There would be so many great Gaza videos. There already are, but there'd be even more now of him doing magnificent things for like years and years and years if he'd stayed healthy and stayed fit. I don't know if you'll, if you'll like necessarily own this because you may not be aware of it, Daryl, but Gaza is a player that you talk about as though they are like, Almost a, like a deceased family member that you yeah. talk about him and like there 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 is no joking about Gaza with Daryl. Like I yeah. had two jokes that came to mind in the course of this conversation that I was like he won't like that he won't want me to ask that question yeah because I, you take Gaza very seriously he holds a special place in your heart. I think it's because part of the reason I became a, a fan of this sport is the 1990 World Cup and and Gaza was sort of at the heart of that. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? So I'm, he's really tied to my beginnings of loving soccer. Yeah, and I think for many Americans, he's also your introduction to Vinnie Jones was a footballer. 
Yeah, exactly. If you've seen that photo, if you've yeah. seen that photo, Oof, yeah. that the, face. The that other, face. the other one I want to highlight is Ronaldo, original Ronaldo. Oh, phenomenal! Um, it's it's really interesting because he did in the end have a long career, right? But he was never the same again after that really bad knee injury in 1999 oh, at rad. Inter. He was only 23 when that happened. Oh my gosh! He was the only footage, 23 when that happened. The footage him before, like, there's that famous one of of PSG where he literally runs through two people, and it's just like the pace that man had, but yeah. the control that he also had at the same time, and then the finishing ability. Probably the best, probably the best forward of my lifetime. Even though uh, Maradona, like I was like four when he was doing his thing, so I don't really count that one so much. But <laughs> of like people that I remember, Ronaldo was the one that I just remember thinking like, there is no way to stop that person. I don't know how you deal with it. And his, so I saw a quote from Quinton Fortune um, that was essentially he'd had As to mark him. I think he was marking him. He was playing for like Atletico Madrid, and uh, Ronaldo was playing for Barcelona that season where he scored like a million goals. Yeah. Um, and he, Quinton Fortune said, "I spoke to." He was marking him, supposed to be marking him. He says, "I spoke to him after the game, and that was the closest I'd got to him all day." <laughs> Oh, original Ronaldo. That commercial, the before Ronaldo, after Ronaldo. If you haven't seen that one, the Nike commercial, one of my favorite Nike commercials when it comes to soccer, and that's saying something. I, I, ha- I haven't seen that either. Oh, have you not? Oh, no. I might have to. I'll add a link in the show notes. Oh, yes, it, please. I'll click it. Terrific. I feel like I might have shown you, you might remember it, but, uh, but yes, I'll include All the right. link. Let, so let me make this one final point about Ronaldo, because people Please. still think, oh, yeah, but he still went on to you know, win the World Cup and then play for Real Madrid after the injury in 99. Um, if you look at him before 99, when he's playing for PSV Eindhoven, playing for Barcelona, and I think his first two seasons at Inter in Syria, he is unbelievably quick, unbelievably strong, really smart and inventive and just absolutely perfect technique. And like you said, he would just dribble through people, right? He would just run through people and then accelerate away from them. He was unstoppable, properly unstoppable. And then when he comes back after all the knee injuries, he's still really smart and has incredible technique and is still pretty strong, but he's just not that fast anymore. So it really is the play that you see for the rest of his career is a guy that has like all, all kinds of weapons, but doesn't have that big weapon of pace. Um, he, he did not anymore. I will also add, uh, my mistake, my apologies. I always thought he played for PSG, but you're right. It was PSV. My blunder. My you're, error. you're only one letter off. All right. Well, that, that makes me feel better. Uh, let's move on to the next question. And I'm glad I'm asking you first because I have thoughts, but I'm not sure how, how much I believe them. Uh, Adam Yesaman, Yesaman, uh, who is more likely to win a trophy in the next three seasons, Wolves or Man United? I think it's still Manchester United. Right, even, I do though, too. even though they're at like similar, you could argue they're at similar levels in the uh, in the Premier League table. Right, I think Man United are slightly ahead at this point. Right, and they fifth. Um, it's still Manchester United because I think they still have better depth. And I would the the two bits of evidence I was put I would point to is the EFL Cup this year. Wolves in October fielded a weakened team against Aston Villa, like really weakened team, and they lost two one. Because once Wolves don't have Ruben Neves and Jao Martino and Adama Traore and Raúl Jiménez. It's definitely, definitely a weakened team, right? Whereas Man United still have someone like Juan Mata is not in the starting eleven, and they can put him out for a cup match. Mm-hmm. Um, and the evidence I would present is that Man United went all the way to what the semi-finals of the EFL Cup, and Wolves lost to Villa in October because they fielded a weakened team. 
Yeah, oh, th- that makes that all makes sense to me. I have a, I have a more cynical but slightly practical answer, which is just I think I've I've said this quote on the show before, but there's the there's all the different quotes about the American military in World War II, like the German one of uh, it's impossible to defeat the United States military because war is chaos and the United States practices chaos every single day. <laughs> and I feel like Manchester United is just constantly in chaos in a state of flux, whereas Wolves seem to kind of have a a good steady plan. And the world we live in currently is a bit chaotic and a bit like uh things are sort of being figured out on the fly maybe that fe- maybe man united being prepared for the chaos helps them be even stronger that's I, the uh ro- rose tinted glasses for sure and i would double down on that though by saying that the reason wolves i think do so well in the premier league is because they have that good steady plan right yep. so even if it goes wrong one week it goes wrong another week they're still sort of they'll pound away in that that's good defensive shape they've got that good counter attack they've got over the course of a season they're going to do pretty well right mm-hmm. but in a one-off cut match um it's very easy for them to to for example lose one nil to manchester united in the fa cup like they did this year yeah there you go uh yeah hence why the jersey remains uh on the door the man united jersey absolutely there, luckily, an- luckily we're not spending any time in that room though at the moment well, yeah, but I think uh, similar to the Olympics, we get to extend uh, my jersey run for the last time we're not in the office. That's, <laughs> that's how that's going to work. That's true. There's also, there is also, I think, something to be said for like brand permanence is the way I would put that. That like people, I think, would recognize a Manchester United badge or the Red Devils or at least kind of like know the colors, know the identifiers, maybe a little bit more so than Wolves. And I do think that like Manchester United, that brand will remain like popular almost even if there isn't soccer being played. Whereas I feel like the popularity of Wolves is obviously commensurate with their rise in the Premier League and how strong they've become, but it's a much more recent development. So I do think from that level as well. I don't disagree, but that doesn't make Man United more likely to win a trophy, does it? No, it just means that there's more money for Man United consistently. And money is a big old deal when it comes to the Premier League. Go on, Edward Wood. That's why he's still got his job, (laughs) isn't it? Uh, sure. Uh, let's move quickly on from who's that your, question. Who's Darryl... the official photocopier partner in Asia? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm sure Ed Woodward does. And if he doesn't, he's probably on that right now. <laughs> Next question comes mm-hmm. from Matthew Graham. Matthew Graham says, The US and Canada both give CONCACAF Champions League spots to the winners of their domestic cup competitions. To boost the prestige of the FA Cup, could the FA decide to give one of England's Champions League spots to the FA Cup winner, or does UEFA decide that? If the FA could do it, should they? So should the FA Cup winner get a Champions League spot, and can they even do that? Uh, so you have done more like in-depth research on this. I, I read some stuff and it all seemed to indicate that UEFA dictates uh, that the league table uh, be the determining factor. Yes, that's the 100% cast iron answer the i found a document called regulations of the uefa champions league 2018 to 2021 cycle um and section 3.02 couldn't say more official than section 3.02 right says associations are represented on the following basis in the champions league if there's one representative it's the winner of the top domestic championship two domestic champion sorry two representatives it's the winner and the runner-up three representatives four representatives, you know, so on. Winner, runner-up, third place, Mm -hmm. fourth place. So it is sort of decided by UEFA that it has to be the top four league finishers in your top division uh, that enters the Champions League. And I went back, Taylor, you'd have been proud of my thorough research here. I went back and found the same regulations document for each season that I could. I couldn't find one prior to 2007-8, but even in 2007-8, it was mandated that it's your top four uh, league finishers in the top division that enter the Champions League if you have four Mm -hmm. representatives. 
There we are. So, so it's basically, which makes sense because UEFA doesn't want individual leagues sort of just deciding who gets to go on their own because you could have like incentivizing competitions and that could be cool. I do think that would be interesting. But you could also have La Liga just being like, well, Barcelona and Real Madrid are going because they're Barcelona and Real Madrid. So we've got two other spots open. Like you could have yeah. some very arbitrary decision making oh, wow. happening based on sort of what leagues needed to happen. It's true, right? Barca could finish seventh and they could be yeah. like, well, we're sending the seventh place finisher this year. Was it in Argentina when they were when it was like Boca or River were in danger of getting relegated and they're like, well, you know what, never mind. <laughs> yeah, they kind of. I don't know the details, but they rewrote the because the relegation system yeah. is weird, right? Because it's it's sort of averaged over the Apertura and Clausura, but yeah. they they sort of um, redid the math on the averages to make sure that they stayed up. Yeah. Yeah. So I, <laughs> while I I sort of like the idea, I like I much prefer the idea of it just being standardized and you know how everything's going to go. But it is an interesting way to incentivize the FA Cup a bit more. There is an argument, and this is based on us watching the English game, right? If you the the English game, the show we're watching on Netflix, mm-hmm. uh, listen to our episodes, our reviews if you haven't already. Think back to the origins of the FA Cup. It's the origins of football. It's the first competition. I don't, we haven't talked about that, right, Taylor? But in the English game, the FA Cup is kind of the only comp- the only national competition you can play in. Um, that's how far back it goes in like the 1860s and 70s. Um, there is an argument that if one trophy deserves weird special treatment and an entry into the Champions League, I think the, uh, the you can make an argument for the FA Cup um, ab- above other uh, domestic cup tournaments. I feel like you're about to start uh, bursting into the lyrics to It's Coming Home. <laughs> I, I mean, I can if you want. I can I, if you I want. I don't. I don't want. <laughs> um, also, I'll have you know, uh, we did the uh, USA versus Argentina game from the 1995 Copa America on Soccer 101 earlier this week. I knew that. Uh, I was there. The the video, like the introductory host who like throws us to the game, I believe referred to the Copa America as the oldest uh, competition in world soccer. So in your face, Daryl, even though that's definitely not true. It's definitely not true. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I think maybe he left off like in South America or something like that or in the Western Hemisphere. Or international. I don't even know if that's true. Maybe it's the earliest international tournament, but it definitely doesn't predate the FA Cup because it took British people going over to South America and, you know, introducing the game. It, it, it did indeed. It did indeed. I'm going to assume that's going to be on season two of the English game. The English game, Colin, Across the Seas. I wonder if there will be a season two, because it's a six-part miniseries, right? Yeah, I'd be okay with it, I think. We'll see. We'll see how the Dep- remaining episodes play out. <laughs> it depends how long the pandemic lasts as well. Um, yeah. you, know, you never answered, Taylor. If, you, if it was possible, do you think that the, the English football should give a Champions League spot to the FA Cup winner? I, I, I sort of wish you washed my answer here because like I, I like that idea. I want the FA Cup to matter more and I like the idea of it coming back to like major prominence. But as I said, I'm not comfortable with it being up to the individual leagues. I like the idea of it being much more standardized. That said, it is called the Champions League, and I don't think if you're fourth in the Premier League you're a champion. Yeah. So we already sort of have a, a misnomer there already. So who knows? Maybe you could open it up to different things. I guess you're a champion of the FA Cup, that does make a little more sense. Yeah. I I think so. And I, I think right. this could be a thing that the English FA sort of negotiates with UEFA next time the uh, the the league rules the Champions League regulations are put together, right? So it's not impossible in that sense. It's just not hasn't been possible in the past. All right. Well, uh, until that gets uh, determined by the FA and all those many things, His Majesty's Her Majesty's FA, excuse me, at this point, uh, I still love that they call it that uh, <laughs> in, in United Passions, not the English game. Uh, we have one more question from Tim Steller. A bit of a thought experiment for you, Mr. Grove. Uh, I want to see a game, says Tim, uh, where players must maintain six feet of social distancing. How would this be different? I, there are many ways. Uh, it could be better, couldn't it? Asked Tim. So the first thing that comes to my 
mind is if you ma- if you mandated six feet of social distancing, yeah. then no one could tackle each other, right? Yeah. So couldn't I was you wondering, just... it's like a game of chicken? <laughs> is that yeah. what we're doing? Yeah, couldn't you just dribble straight up the middle? Mm-hmm. And if you just dribble in a straight line, everybody eventually has to get out of your way and you just run the ball yep. into the goal. Pretty much. that That is the major problem right there. Uh, then also, you know, there is the, like, if you want to go real with this, this is coronavirus inspired and, you know, things hang, particles hang in the air. It's not necessarily about the touching as much as it is everything else. So uh, I think you could run into some problems as well. If David De Gea wipes his brow or wipes his mouth and then catches a ball and throws that ball, is is that a coronavirus ball now? I think <laughs> there, there are some issues there to be dealt with. I do have a way, I think, around this, uh, how? potentially. How can, you so, st- how can you stop everybody looking like 1997 Ronaldo <laughs> by dribbling uh, straight up the middle and no one can touch them? Because you, you, I mean, it would fundamentally change uh, the way the game is played and the kind of existence of the game. But I like the idea of you have uh, on the field, you have 22 different grids uh, and mm. one player is allowed in each grid and you cannot leave that grid. Oh, uh, and so then you course. can kind of pass it from grid to grid. If it goes out of bounds, it's the other team's ball. It's a turnover, but you can only move it that way. And then you can move within your grid to sort of try to intercept or block out passes. Interesting. So these... Mm-hmm. These grids would have to be arranged so that passing was difficult, right? Because otherwise you really could just bypass. You could take it very slowly and bypass Mm -hmm. the other players. Oh, that's really interesting. You need like a... Sergi Busquets would be the best at this, right? Because he could fake Mm -hmm. passing one way, but then like don't open his hips, but pass the other way. That's the way to get this done, isn't it? Yeah, he'd be pretty pretty decent. He'd be pretty decent at this one. So you'd need um, more attackers than defenders like in one half of the field which mm-hmm. is doable, right? And you'd need sort of it to be a, a situation where the player with the ball has at least two options. And that say he has two options and there's one defender who can sort of, he's running around his own little box to try and block a pass to one or the other, but you can't fully block off both. So you, yeah, can't, and- you can't make it too easy to pass and you can't make yeah. it too hard to pass. But with the correct distancing, we could get this done. Yeah, you you could, and then the the other wrinkle would be that you still have to respect the six uh, foot uh, social distancing, which yes. means that each grid then has a six foot like no man's land. But that makes it harder to pass because otherwise you could just go sort of if you had like two two squares that were like catty corner to each other or whatever, like diagonal, you could easily just move the ball between there. The opposition will never be able to get it. But if you have six foot of space, now there's at least a little more uh, a little more room for the passes to go. But also there's more likelihood that defenders could then intercept or step in front or just cause some blocking issues okay i'd watch this i'd watch this as, a, as an experiment at the very least it's either that or uh like the hamster ball soccer that uh has been played before oh in the bubbles <laughs> yes yes yeah, bubble soccer we could try that right there's all kinds of things we, we could, could. Try. <laughs> i mean why not we'll see how things go over the next couple months <laughs> we we really don't know when this is going to end right so Mm-mm. we we just gotta keep making the total soccer show and keep washing our hands is, is that the official barometer for which country deals with it the best? Uh, I mean, as opposed to just sort of like forces its players to play soccer even when conditions are unsafe. But is it whichever team, whichever league restarts in the safest conditions? Is that the one that we know dealt with the virus the best? I mean, it depends if everybody is honest and taking the same amount of low mm-hmm. risk and no one's yeah. rushing it back. Then, yes, that would be the barometer, right? All right. All right. Well, then we'll, we'll see how it plays out. But until then, we'll be doing listener questions. We'll be doing more interviews. We'll be doing the English game and other movies and podcasts and things like that. Daryl, I know you did an interview that I'm very excited to hear about uh, when it gets published, I think, tomorrow. 
Oh, with Christian Polanco, uh, yeah, he yes, uh, talk, Christian Polanco basically recommends uh, five uh, stand-up specials that you can stream or just straight up find on YouTube. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was a really good conversation, and Christian had some great recommendations. And then because you know I, I am how I am, there was a lot of me asking, well, why do you like this? Like, what what is it about this that you like? Can you explain it? And uh, Mr. Christian Polanco had an, all kinds of answers for that. He's very analytical about his comedy, which is one of the things I liked and one of, one of the reasons I really enjoyed talking to him. So it's it's Gallagher, Carlos Mencia, and then Carrot Top are numbers three through five? And one and two. Yeah. He just had different <laughs> specials from each one. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> um, also, if you're looking for classic match reviews, you should know about our other podcast, Soccer 101. It's a whole different show. You have to search mm-hmm. for it in your podcast player. Um, Soccer 101. We have most recently reviewed the US's 3-0 win over Argentina at the 1995 Copa America and the US's 2-0 win over Mexico at the 2002 World Cup. I think the plan for what this coming Monday, Taylor, is to review the US's win over Spain at the 2009 Confederations Cup. So they're all like uh, US upset wins, essentially. I am I am in for that one. I'm excited for it. I'm glad you uh, are. I don't want to do it on my own. I remember watching that one uh, in my cubicle at my old job. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Did they let you do yeah. that? I'm not sure they knew, but I also yelled very loudly when the second goal happened. So they might have known at that point. So if there are any environmental problems um, (laughs) in Virginia, um, it could be because you were watching that game instead of uh, doing your job. Or that I had no background in environmental science. Yes, one or the other. One or the other. Yeah, maybe things are better because you weren't paying attention. (laughs) Almost certainly. (laughs) If you'd like to send us a question for a future show, it is totalsoccershow.com slash questions please send your questions we'll be very excited to answer them and then of course there's the english game episode three coming soon right taylor you already mentioned Mm -hmm. that so i will close by saying taylor rockwell thank you for taking the time to talk to me today hey daryl yeah right back at you buddy oh listeners thank you for listening and we will talk to you again very soon 